Good morning, Grace Church. Morning scripture reading comes from the book of James, first chapter, verses 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Thanks, Dana. Good morning. Have you ever tried to tell someone that you loved something that you meant for their good, but you knew would be really hard for them to hear? You ever had to do that? How, how, how do you go about it in such a way that is both winsome and compelling? That's a big deal, right? You, you, you want whatever you share to be desirable to them, and you want them to act on it. Well, James's whole letter is filled with this kind of thing, one after another. And he seems to have settled on an approach. How do we tell people hard things in a way that they hear our heart, they see that it's rooted in truth, and they're eager to listen well? He seems to have settled on an approach. And so I just, have you noticed it? Have you, have you picked up on it uh, five times, more or less, in the 18 verses we've covered so far? He's commanded or shared something that he knew would be challenging, and he did it with the same four-part process. If you saw it, that's awesome. If not, let me shine some light on it for you. First, he made sure to get his reader's attention. Have you, have you noticed that again? Five, five times he did this. Something new, he introduces a new thing that he knows is, they need to hear, but it's going to be hard for them to hear. And he gets their attention by issuing a fairly provocative, but, and I say substance-less, command or statement. And I only mean it substance-less in the sense that he hasn't added the substance yet. So what do I mean by that? Count it all joy. Count what is all joy? What does it mean to count something as all joy? But he gets your attention, right? Count it all joy. If any of you lacks wisdom, okay, we don't know what's next. What, what do we do if we lack wisdom? But it gets your attention. Let the lowly and the rich brother boast. It's a, kind of a big deal. Blessed is the man. Do not be deceived. He's done this over and over. It just gets you. You don't, you don't, don't be deceived about what? I, I don't want to be deceived. Am I being deceived? He gets your attention by, by putting something out there that you're not sure where he's going, but it, it grabs you. Again, to this point in the letter, James has introduced every new clause this way. He's going somewhere with this, but you don't know where yet. And he, got, he gets your attention. He gives them just enough to, to cause them to tune in or tune back in, but not enough to know what he's going to do. Next, he frequently uses a term of endearment to make sure that they know that his primary motivation is love. I'm about to drop something on you. You might not like it. And even if you do like it, it's probably going to be hard. But, but know that I'm doing it only because I love you. So he calls them my brothers, brother, my beloved brothers, it was important for James, to James that his readers know that he cared deeply for them. Here's the third part in James' process for saying hard things. He then followed up his attention-grabbing intro and love reiteration 
with the real substance of this challenging new thought. So count it all joy, my brothers, and here it is. When you face trials of various kinds, that's hard. Count it all joy when you're at an amusement park or on a beach. Okay, I got that. But count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. That's different. If any lack wisdom, let them ask God. Okay, ask God. uh, In faith and with no doubting. That's harder. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Wait, when I'm low, I'm high? And the rich in his humiliation. So when I'm high, I'm low, that's hard. What does that mean? This is how James works. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So again, James knew that each of these things would be hard to hear and harder still to obey. But he knew his readers needed to hear them. So finally... He helped them to put them into practice, to see why obedience to these things was both right and good, as God's commands always are. The testing of your faith, he says, produces steadfastness, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's a powerful motivator. So he he gives them motivation to do what he's calling them to do. God gives wisdom generously and without reproach to all who ask him for it. That's awesome. We should want that. The rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We shouldn't want that. So we need to look at our lowliness and our loftiness in different ways. The man who remains steadfast under trial will receive, do you remember, the crown of life. Kind of a big deal. And don't be deceived because those who are, who are not deceived, are a kind of first fruits of God's Creatures, you with me? You see, you see what he's doing here. He, he he gets their attention. He lets them know that he loves them, that he has something hard to say, but he loves them. Tells them the hard thing, and then tells them that there is a greater reward for obedience than whatever obedience might cost them. So obey. Our passage for this morning is no exception. There's an attention grabber, a term of endearment, a hard command, and a powerful incentive. It's James' familiar formula, and it's the outline of the sermon for this morning. The main point in all of it, hear this grace, is that God requires righteousness from his people no matter our circumstances. He requires righteousness from us no matter how hard our life is. Hardship is never a justification for wickedness. But more importantly still, James helps us to see that God always provides for his people what he requires of his people. Would you write that down? If you've never heard that, that's really good news. God always provides for his people what he requires of his people. We see that ultimately in the cross of Jesus, like Kyle shared in the exhortation, but we see it in another pretty profound way this morning as well. Obviously, that's a lot. There's a lot here. I got to be honest. It should be two sermons. It's one. I'm gone next Sunday, so I got to get it in this one. I'm going to leave out two things that you really, really need uh, in the outline or in the back in the discussion questions. I really urge you to take this to your discipleship group. You need to know about the fact that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But what does that have to do with whether I walk day to day in holiness? How does the holiness that Christ won for me relate to the holiness that I live in my life? You need to know more about that than I'm going to tell you this morning. And you need to know what the order of salvation is. You need to know that salvation is bigger than just praying a prayer and then going to heaven when you die. But I'm giving you almost nothing on either of those. So I'm going to pray that God would be happy about that, I guess. Let's pray. 
God, we, we love you, and there's so much good here. And in typical James, Jamesian, I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but in typical Jamesian fashion, he drops these unbelievable truths in such unassuming, simple language, such profound, life-changing things with just a what feels almost like a throwaway sentence. There's a lot here. There's a lot here that we need to hear and do. There's a lot of hope in these passages, even though they're challenging to put into practice. I pray that we'd get it all. I pray that I'd be helpful in at least introducing a couple of things this morning and, and that your people would have ears to hear and then press in with one another throughout this this week and beyond. God, above all, open our eyes to the fact that you are greater than we, than, than we could ever imagine. We, we will have eternity fully convinced every minute that it can't get any greater than this, and then it will forever and ever and ever. Not because you give us more donuts or, or more golf clubs or, or more trips to a, our favorite store with everything on sale, but because we'll get more of you every minute of every day forever and ever and ever and eternity, and your glory can never be exhausted. You open our eyes to see this, to behold this, to delight in this, and you change our taste buds to appreciate it. That's the good news in James, even as he calls us to do hard things now. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, if you have something important to say, and you want to make sure that the person you're saying it to is paying attention, what do you do? Especially if maybe you're in the habit of saying important and challenging things and you have more to go beyond this. You know, it's, it's one thing to just get their attention once, but what if you have to keep getting it and keeping it over and over? And that's, again, where James is here. I, I've tried a few ways over the years. As a youth pastor, I try to give really, you know, provocative titles to my sermons. One of my, my favorites was the ridiculousness of Christmas, right? You can't call Christmas ridiculous. What are you talking about? It is in certain ways. I don't know if you know this, but there's like moving stars and virgin births and all that's that's crazy stuff. And so I'd give I'd give some weird titles to try to get your attention. News outlets, you know this. This is more so today than maybe ever. Really graphic images and headlines that are make you that, that are designed to make you think you might die at any second now if you don't read what's in this article. Or maybe you're missing out on the best possible life you could ever have if you don't click here. They're really, really good at getting your attention that way with like no substance afterwards. I love one of my favorites, kids. You guys, if you're parents or if you've been at Grace Church, because there's lots of kids, you know, there's like this new stick outside. It's a, it's a stick, right? It's just a stick. That's it. And then you see one kid run in more excited about the stick than you could possibly imagine. And every kid needs to come and see this, this new stick. I, I love the overselling that kids have. They're just so eager and they, but they want your attention. They want you outside. The stick matters, right? Uh, my mom used to get my attention by using two of my names, <laughs> David, Jason. I knew that was in trouble. My dad had his version. I knew something serious was about to drop when he would say, son. <laughs> um, he still does that, actually. But So you get the idea, right? We've we got to get somebody's attention when we need to say something important. And there's probably a number of ways you can do that. But James, James has settled on the, wording his new, introducing his new clauses, new commands in a particular way. 
he makes a provocative but a statement you don't know what it means exactly right away. So this is no exception. He says this. By, by, he's about to throw down a new challenge, and he attempts to re-grab his reader's attention or keep it by saying, real simply, know this. Okay, that it kind of works, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I, I try that regularly in my sermons. I'll say, okay, Grace, you gotta, you gotta get this. You gotta know this. You gotta understand this. This is, this is a big deal. Think about this: if, if your boss walks into your office, or maybe the doctor into the waiting room, or the mechanic into the lobby, and they, they, they look right at you, Susie, you need to know. All right, you're paying attention. This is my doctor. This is my, my car's up on a, on a hoist, or. Probably, probably help you to tune in. And so the real question, of course, is what am I getting at? What follows in the sermon? Or what's Susie's boss or doctor or mechanic going to tell her about her job or body or car? And in this case, what's James going to say to his readers? What does he want them to know? We don't know yet, but the introduction is a pretty effective way of getting us to lock in. Know this, Grace Church. That's what James tells us. And that leads to the second part of his four-part process, his term of endearment. Know this. Do you see it? My beloved brothers. All right, so I'm going to rip on that first in a certain way, and then I'm going to build it up in a different way. So one of the more common platitudes that you and I have heard is, people don't care how much you know until... They know how much you care. At least Joanna's heard it. Maybe the rest of you haven't. You've heard it now, so I'll say it again. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, there's something to that, right? We can all, we can all agree there's something to that. There isn't much doubt that we'd all rather hear hard things from people that we know care about us. But honestly, I think from a truth-receiving perspective, that's mostly bunk. And you can write that down, B-U-N-K, bunk. I think it's mostly bunk, and I'll tell you why. It's mostly the results, that, that idea, that mindset on the receiving end is mostly the result of undervaluing truth and overvaluing our feelings. If you break your arm, worrying how much your doctor cares about you is kind of silly. What you need to be concerned about is whether he or she knows how to skillfully put your arm back in place. The same is true with your auto mechanic, plumber, and even your evangelist. It is far more important that someone shares the true gospel with you than it is that they do so with a great deal of affection. For your sake, I mean. It is the truth that sets you free, not the disposition of the person sharing it with you. Paul seems to teach us this exact principle. Paul, not James, Paul in in Philippians 1. He's in prison for sharing the gospel, and there's some people who are, they're punks, right? So some indeed, he says, Paul says, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry with him. So there's this jostling in their minds that people are listening to Paul and not them. He's in prison, so now they can rise to the top. It's pretty messed up. So he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. Those who do it out of goodwill do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel in prison. The former, those who do it out of envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me, to make life harder for me while I'm in prison. What then? And here's here's what I'm Here's the biblical basis for 
for the bunk. What then, Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Again, this is true with other Christians as well when they come to us with a hard message. On the truth-receiving end, we need to be far more concerned with whether or not what they're telling us is true than how they're telling it to us. Okay, let's, let me tell you why on the other end this matters. And this is the end James is actually coming at it from. At the same time, on the truth delivering, when we share the truth, when we give the truth, God does not allow us to be indifferent to our motives or our disposition as Christians. For our soul's sake and theirs, for ours and theirs, we must fight for a right heart to go with our right message. It's always, always, well, almost always, easier to hear for someone to hear a hard thing we might say and to trust the things we do say when they know they come from us out of love. It's always, almost always easier to hear that way. And more importantly, it is always most honoring to God when we speak the truth in love. That's how he speaks it to us. The things James said are true, regardless of his motives for saying them or his disposition towards them. But James did love them, and he wanted them to know that. He knew that this was not optional for him as the truth speaker, if he meant to honor God. He did want what's best for them. He did care about how his words would land on them, whether they would receive them and believe them and put them into practice. And so he made sure his readers knew how he viewed them. I'm about to tell you something again. You're struggling in certain ways, and I need to let you know that, and I need to let you know what to do about that. But I'm going to do that, and I want you to know you are my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. So before we move on, I've got... I've got nine tips for you, okay? This is super. This is as practical as I get in a sermon. Before we move on to the actual hard truths, which will give us a few more, actually, when we get to them, a few more helpful tips on how to give and receive hard truths, would you all consider what I just said from two really practical angles, how to, how to receive truth well and how to deliver truth well. So first, how to receive truth. We will be a much healthier church. You will be a much more mature Christian if you can learn a few lessons. Number one, God's word is the only definitive source of moral truth. If we are to rightly receive it then, remember this is tips for receiving the truth well. If you are to receive well moral truth, it will be because you know your Bibles well enough to recognize it when you hear it. All right, that's a good thing for you to hear. (laughs) And me too. Number two, just because someone shares truth with you in a harsh way doesn't make them wrong, and just because they share it with you in a kind way doesn't make them right. All right, Their disposition does not determine truth. Who among us would refuse a 10-carat diamond because it came wrapped in a Green Bay Packers wrapping paper? So, yeah, We're in Minnesota, people, you, you know. All right, and then at the same time, who would gladly receive a package of anthrax because it came wrapped in a $100 bill? So let me say that again. Just because someone shares truth in a harsh way doesn't make them wrong, and just because someone shares it in a kind way doesn't make them right. Number three, we are fallible. We are not perfect. We do not understand everything there is to understand, not even about ourselves. The Bible describes our own hearts, even as Christians, 
as deceptive. Paul, the Apostle Paul says something that I, I try to keep in mind constantly. He says, in this matter, my conscience is clean, but my conscience is not my ultimate judge. The Lord God is, and he alone knows all things. So we are fallible, and so we ought to be humble. Just because when somebody, this is the truth, tips for receiving truth, just because when someone tells us something, we don't see it in us right away. It doesn't seem like it describes our heart accurately. doesn't mean it isn't true. We ought to be careful in our consideration and our thinking through it and our praying through it when someone shares something hard with us before we dismiss it. Lastly, number four, everyone who comes to us uh, intending to share truth with us ought to leave. So someone has something hard they want to share. Maybe they don't have everything, their face looks mean and their words are are stronger than you would like. But everyone who comes to us with truth ought to leave, regardless of their motivation or delivery, impressed by the humble and glad-hearted way that we receive it. We all, this is another one to write down, we all ought to realize that no matter how bad they describe us, we're worse than that. We're worse than that. <clears throat> that's, that's what makes the gospel such good news, because Christ died for us. Even though we're worse than we could imagine, Christ died for us anyway. So there's, there's four tips for how to receive truth well. Here's, I said nine, I meant eight. There's, here's four for how to share it well. Okay, three of them are the same. Number one, God's word is the only definitive source of moral truth, but the implication is a little different. People don't need your opinions. They they just don't don't need your opinions as to how they ought to think or feel or behave. They need God's commands and promises. If you're going to bring the kind of truth that James continues to bring to his people, it is not his opinion, and it shouldn't be yours either. God's word is what they need. Secondly, We are fallible, and so we ought to be humble. We might think, we might even be fairly certain that we see something in someone that needs to be addressed. But you don't have perfect sight. God alone does. So bring it humbly. Number three, this one's different. We ought to be willing not to just share the truth with the person, but walk with them in it, whatever that means. Whatever hard truth that we bring to someone, we ought to be willing to walk with them in obedience to it, in whatever repentance it might call for. And lastly, number four, as James modeled for the sake of our own souls and for obedience to, and in an obedience to Christ's commands, we ought to cultivate love for anyone we share the truth of God's word with. This is true whether it's uh, somebody at Grace Church who's a, another Christian, whether it's your unbelieving neighbors or whether it's those who are fully committed to doing harm to us in Jesus' name on the other side of the earth, whoever it is that we mean to share truth with, it ought to be with a heart that has been committed to being filled with love for that person. So before getting to the hard-to-swallow point, James grabbed his reader's attention and made sure they knew he loved him. He, he loved them. So what then is he going to say? <laughs> what then is, you know, you've, maybe you've had this where somebody comes to you and like, now Dave, I want you to know, I really appreciate this about you and that about you. You're just waiting for the butt. <laughs> All right, where, where are you going with this? Because I know you well enough to know that's not the end of the story. Okay, so, so where's James going with this? What is this hard truth that he needs to share with his readers? 
part three in his process. It seems from the first 18 verses that James's readers were very understandably struggling significantly in their hardships. He's named several of them. Their trials, their ignorance, their lowliness, their sinful temptations. This was hard. It was hard to know what to make of this. These were all for following Jesus. It's hard to know how God related to this. They're struggling. James understood that. It also seems that in response to all all of these struggles and these difficulties in James's words, they were struggling with each other in certain ways. There was conflict. There, there was a, some measure of anger and acting out. And as a result, they were insisting on their own way, at least in certain ways, and giving in at times to their sinful desires. So James had to say something hard to them. He says in verse 19, Let every person, all of you, all of you suffering Christians, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then he, he continued on with the hard command just a little bit later in verse 21. So therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Two verses, four commands. They're really good for all of us. They're, they're, they're good for us to hear at any time, and especially when life is hard. Let's, let's consider each. Be, be quick to hear. Regardless of our circumstances, grace, regardless of our struggles, regardless of how certain we are that we are right, regardless of who we are speaking with or what we are speaking with them about, our first inclination towards others in both giving and receiving truth ought to be to listen. It's all over in the Bible. James says it with a fine point right here. For most of us, and by most of us, I, when I say that, I usually mean me. It's just a, it's a way to soften the blow on my own heart. You might not struggle with this, but I do. For most of us, our, our flesh's first inclination is to talk, is to talk. The, the first inclination of James's readers, evidently, was to talk. But James corrects us and them with a straightforward command, to be quick to hear, to hear. This is true regardless of which side of truth impartation you are on. If you feel the need to share truth with someone, the most God and them honoring way to do so is to say something like, hey, I'd really like to talk to you about something. I have something I think I need to share with you. Here it is, but I'd like to know first whether you have any thoughts on the matter. Or I think it'd be good if we were to discuss the way you spoke at the meeting last night, and I'd like to hear from you first to make sure I understand things from your perspective. I think your kids aren't behaving very well. Do you have any sense of what I might be talking about, and and how do you understand that? And listen, listen, listen. On the other end, if someone comes to you to share with you, listen first and listen carefully. Make sure your aim is to really hear for understanding. That's the key. Not just listen. There's a big difference between taking in sounds, you know, Char- Charlie Brown teacher style. Wah, wah, wah. That's that's often what we do. Or or already like you're ready to reply right away. There's a big difference between taking in sounds, recognizing words, and truly trying to understand what someone is saying to you. James's command to be quick to hear is a command to be quick to listen for understanding. In both cases, whether we're listening first before we share or listening first before we receive, the goal is always to make sure that you understand the other person's perspective. This is good for this is great marriage advice, parenting advice, co-worker advice. 
always make sure you understand the other person's perspective in a way that they would gladly sign off on before you attempt to speak yourself. This is what James means. I think this is what you're saying. I think this is what you just shared with me. Is that fair? Is that accurate? Is that is that actually what you're trying to tell me? In both cases, it's a good reminder that there is almost always something worth hearing, some measure of truth that is right for us to get, even if the accusation comes from the most ill-intentioned or spiritually mature person. All right, be quick to hear. Second, be slow to speak. His next command is that his readers be slow to speak. In order to obey the first command, you've got to obey the second one. You can't listen well if you're already talking. How many times does that happen? When, when things really get sideways, it's usually because somebody's already talking when they should still be listening. Probably both of you. Both of us. You can't listen well if you're already talking or already readying your reply. When someone shares with you, obeying James's command means that if you speak at all, before the person is done communicating to you what they intend to share, and you're both sure that you understand it, it ought to be simply to ask clarifying questions, not to push back, to correct, or refute. Maybe there's a place for that later, but it's not now. For someone like me, that's hard enough. But it's more than just that that James is getting at. James wasn't merely commanding his readers to be slow to speak at the beginning of a conversation and then let the, let the dam down, which I'm basically describing myself here, which is sort of funny and sort of discouraging. But anyway, he was, he was giving them a general principle, not just for the start of a conversation, but for all of life. We should always be slow to speak. Now, Grace, hear what I'm saying and hear what I'm not saying. We are a people with the best news in the whole world. There is nobody who has better news. There is nobody who has more to say than us. And so we do need to talk. This isn't a vow of silence. And yet it is almost always better to listen, think, and pray more than you talk. Proverbs 17.27 says it this way. Whatever restrain, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. I'll never forget the time I was at a conference I've probably shared this with you three or four times over the last 10 years, but I'll never forget the time I was at a conference and a longtime missionary to the Middle East was asked, if you were given the opportunity to sit down with one, for one hour with the most hard-hearted hater of Jesus in the whole world, if that person would sit down and listen to you for one hour, what would you say to them? And, and I'll never forget the response. He said, I would listen for 55 minutes in order that I would know what to say in the last five. That's pretty powerful. I don't know, maybe it was 50 and 10 or something. But, but the point was obviously stuck with me. And I think that's the heart of James's command here in Proverbs 17, 27 and all over in the Bible. So be quick to hear, be slow to speak, and thirdly, be slow to anger. James's third command is that his readers ought to be slow in getting angry. Now, notice this, though. This is really important. We're Midwesterners, so this might blow your mind. Um, but, it's, but he did not say, don't be angry. That's not the command. It's not, don't be angry. In a similar way to Paul's words in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. It's the same basic concept here. Anger itself is not inherently sinful or bad. The Bible repeatedly describes God as having his anger kindled. Grace, you got to hear this maybe. Again, Minnesota nice, Midwest nice, 
maybe doesn't agree with this, but we choose God's word over Midwest nice. Truly there are things that ought to anger us, things for which it is a sin not to be angry about. Blasphemy and injustice, taking advantage of the vulnerable and things like that. Anger isn't the problem. The problem is that we're often angry about wrong things and then we do wrong things in our anger. So there's two temptations to get it wrong, which we usually fall into and rarely get it right. One of the clearest biblical examples of getting anger wrong in about every possible way is Genesis 34 and 35. Maybe you know the story. Jacob and Leah's daughter, Dinah, was raped. That's terrible. Uh, by a Canaanite prince named Shechem. When Jacob was made, Jacob, the, the father, was made aware of this, his anger ought to have burned hot. But it didn't. He doesn't seem to have been angry at all, certainly not nearly enough. Well, on the other hand, do you remember what her brothers did? They, they got angry. When her brothers heard of it, they were filled with anger, but sinfully acted on it by killing every male in the city, plundering everything they had, and then carrying off all their women and children. Jacob sinned by lacking righteous anger, and his sons sinned by lacking a righteous response to their anger. It's, and here's the point. It's not easy to know when our anger or our planned response to our anger are righteous. It's not easy to know that. Therefore, James commands his readers not to not be angry, but to be slow to anger. If we are to obey James, therefore, when we feel anger welling up, first of all, you cultivate anger. That's the first step, is to cultivate anger. We, we need to get more angry about certain things and a whole lot less about other things. But having cultivated anger, when we feel it welling up inside of us, we must take control of it before it takes control of us. Grab a hold of it. Examine it. Discern its source, where it is rooted in selfishness or pride or lies. We need to turn it away and refuse to allow it to continue to grow, much less bear fruit. But where we find it to be rooted in real righteousness, we must then be careful to act on it in ways prescribed by God, not in any way our flesh might wish. All right, finally, here's the fourth and last command, hard hard statement. James commanded his readers then, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. i got to give you some definitions here. Filthiness refers, in this sense, to any kind of moral impurity. It's a generic term. The word translated wickedness also refers to sin in general, but it has an added component to its meaning. It has a more intentional or premeditated connotation to it. Sin James's readers had chosen to foster. And the term rampant could also be translated remaining. Okay, so the point here is that sin, James is talking about sin that had remained in the hearts and lives of his readers even after their conversion. So the word picture here that's not really clear in the English translation, you picture somebody that had flopped around in the mud for a while and their clothes were just filthy. We're not going to worry about why they were flopping around in mud, but they were. And their clothes were just filthy. They're, they're disgusting. It's gross. And the, the command is to peel off or to take that off, to completely remove those filthy clothes. It breaks down because your skin is still dirty. But you get the idea. The idea is take these dirty clothes completely off. He was commanding them to take off all of their lingering sin and sinful desires and to walk in total moral cleanliness. 
Now, here's the part of the sermon that you should be getting, but you're not. I'm just going to say a a few sentences when it should be another 20 minutes. So, Grace, let's settle firmly on the fact. Okay, that's that's my provocative way of introducing something new. Grace, let's settle firmly on the fact that there is no amount of sin that God's people are allowed to tolerate in ourselves. Let's settle firmly on the fact that there is no amount of sin God's people are allowed to tolerate in ourselves. There is no acceptable degree of filth or wickedness that we can rightly entertain in our hearts. Our debt, our total debt is paid in Jesus. And we will not, by God's curious design, be fully sanctified until we die or Jesus returns. But we are still charged to put away every single ounce of sin that we find in us. All right, here's probably the most important sentence I'll say. God has made us holy for holiness, not to make some measure of holiness acceptable. Some measure of unholiness acceptable. God made us holy for holiness, not to make some measure of unholiness acceptable. Let us therefore, in the Spirit's power, and because we are already holy, take off all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's that's what James is commanding. So here's the fourth part. All of this is hard. Uh, I know that. It's hard to be slow, slow to speak. It's hard to be quick to listen. It's hard to put off or be slow in putting on righteous anger. It's hard to fight against every sinful inclination that comes my way and seek to put it off. It's hard under ideal circumstances. It's harder still when life is already hard which is where James's readers found themselves, and many of you find yourselves. They certainly would have known that James was right. They knew this. They'd received this for many of them for years and years and years and years. Generations, centuries, and millennia had taught these things from the word of God. They certainly knew James was right, and they no doubt wanted to want what he had commanded them. What they must have felt because they're talking trash to each other. They're angry. They're, they're frustrated. They must have felt like they're struggling to put up 100 pounds, and James just puts two, two more 45s on each end. I mean, it must have felt like, James, we're, we're yelling at each other as it is, and you're putting more on us? The Christian life, wrongly framed, can often feel that way. For that reason, though, it was a sweet gift that James James's formula included another powerful incentive, two of them, one negative, one positive. See if you can see if you can recognize them. I'm going to read our passage one more time. See if you can pick up the negative incentive and the positive incentive. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Two powerful incentives, one negative, one positive. It's hard to obey this stuff, but I'm going to give you some help, he says. The negative incentive concerns the consequences for failing to obey. It does not produce the righteousness that God requires. It's just a clear way of saying what James has already said. God requires righteousness from his righteous people. James will unpack this later when he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by what I do. He's gonna, we're going to come back to this. He's going to explain this more later. For now, simply hang on to the fact that James was incentivizing his readers to pursue the kind of righteousness that he had just called them to 
by helping them to see that it's not a matter of mere preference. God requires all, all all of his people and all followers of Jesus to do these things. The positive incentive James offers for obedience is assurance of salvation. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But I want you to notice here that there is a connection, Grace, and this is one you got to press in on with each other in your discipleship groups. Come up to any of the elders or someone who looks fairly wise and ask them about this after, after church, for real. There is a connection, an un, unseverable connection. You've got to get what it is because to get it wrong is heresy. To get it right is life. There is an unseverable connection between our actual holiness and the salvation of our souls. Make sure you understand what that relationship is. Can you explain that? Can you explain how the things you do in a day, whether you act sinfully and wrong constantly and give in to rampant wickedness and filthiness, can you explain how doing that relates to whether or not you're actually a Christian or whether you're a mature Christian or whether you should have any assurance of salvation? If you can't, you need to be able to, so ask somebody. At the least, glad-hearted obedience to God's command is a powerful witness to the authenticity of our faith. Okay, so here's where I'm going to land the plane. It is some of the best news that you'll ever hear. So let me tell you this. In this passage, James calls his readers to be sanctified, to, to be more holy than they are, and he tells them a few specific ways in which they need to do that, in the way they listen and speak and Deal with their anger. That's hard. We, we covered that. As we've seen many times and again today, God honoring obedience to these commands do not come just because we try harder, because we have enough self-control to be able to do what we need to do. That's not where it ultimately comes from. That maybe can hold sins tight a wave back for a little while, but eventually, if that's all we've got, it'll crush us. So instead, real sanctification, real growth and holiness inside, not just outside, comes from a greater desire for righteousness than for sin. Grace, we will love to walk in righteousness only once we come to love righteousness. But the million-dollar question is, how does that happen? (laughs) How do we we actually come to love righteousness? It's, It's a cheesy example, but I think you'll track. It's great to know... It's great to know, as a matter of fact, that it is almost always better to eat kale than to eat a Snickers. That's good. That's good to know, right? But have you ever tried kale? It's not good. I don't have, and you don't have, a lot of control over my taste buds. Wouldn't it be neat if there was a little dial and you could just turn it to kale, and then you'd eat things that were really good for you and not things that weren't? We don't have that. And in the same way, we don't have a righteousness dial that we can just tune on our own to love what we should love, which is what sanctification is. James James gives the beginning of the answer to our question, not how do I learn to love kale. That's that's beyond the scope of the Bible. <laughs> but But how do I learn to love righteousness? That's my great desire as a Christian. James gives us the beginning of the answer to that question. He pulls back the curtain even further to reveal the source of changing taste buds. And if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes who has tried to do what God requires of you and struggled, you know that's a really big deal. This is the second full sermon I should be giving, but you get literally like 10 sentences. 
That's a little more than that. James subtly reveals that a genuine appetite for righteousness will begin to develop in the people of God when we receive with meekness the implanted word. This is so remarkably significant, it's hard to put into words. What we need, if we are to truly walk in holiness, is a new appetite. Our appetite was, and still is to some degree, for sin. And James is saying it needs now in every way, and in these specific ways, to be for the things of God. And he tells us where to get those kinds of taste buds. It comes from the transforming work of the implanted word. Okay, we need to hear. He just said this in verse 18. We need to hear and receive the gospel in faith if we are to become Christians, to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven of our sins and brought into his kingdom and his family. But James, in yet another impressively understated way, he says in eight words what I, I'm, I'm struggling to say in 4,000. In, in, in yet another impressively understated way, James helps us to see that the gospel The word of truth, as he calls it, that we hear and believe when we first come to faith in Jesus. Don't hear it, you can't come to faith in Jesus. Hear it, believe it, trust in it, you become a Christian, you're forgiven. It doesn't just burn up at conversion. Hear that grace. The word of truth that we believe when it first comes to us in power that converts us and makes us Christians doesn't just burn up at at our conversion. Rather, it implants in us and continues to work on us. The gospel is both the spark that lights the initial fire of our salvation and the fuel that keeps it burning. It is the power that both saves and sanctifies us. It is the good news that God will cleanse us of all of our sin in Christ, that he'll put us in Christ and give us Christ's righteous account and the good news that through that he will make us like Christ. Do you want to obey God and honor God by becoming a better listener and a better speaker and less angry and less filthy and less rampantly wicked, as James commands here? If so, follow me, this is a tight line of logic. James is giving it to us. If so, come to know the superior value of being slow to speak, slow to, or, or slow to listen, being quick to listen, slow to speak, being patient being clean and being righteous. Those things are more valuable. Learn the greater value of those things. How do you do that? You do that by learning that if you don't, you lack the righteousness that pleases God. And if you do, you have evidence of genuine salvation. Tight logic. But above all, do all of that in the knowledge that this too is God's gift to you, continually being worked out in all of his people through the time released, God's timing, we wish it were quicker, but the the God-time-released effect of the embedded word. Listen to the words of Ezekiel. I'm almost done. I will sprinkle clean. This is many years before James. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What an awesome promise that this was from God. James, in a way that only James can do, speaks so simply here about the fulfillment of this awesome promise of God through Ezekiel for all who hope in Jesus that it's you almost don't even see it. 
But don't let the un- unassuming manner in which he states it cause you to miss its staggering glory. This is taste bud tuning right here. And that's what we need. We must humbly receive the taste bud transforming work of God. We, he, he says you've got to humbly receive it. There's a way in which we participate in this. We humbly receive this. Notice we receive it. We don't go out and earn it, or, but we, we need to humbly allow it to come into us. We need to quench not the work of the Spirit in us, the implanted word in us. We need to humbly receive the trans, taste bud transforming work of God through the implanted word. But when we do, grace, it will always continue the saving and sanctifying work of God in us. It will always bring about the very change in appetite that produces the righteousness that God requires. All glory to God through Jesus Christ our Lord.